This is Jim Cummings, and you may not know me, but you do know the terror that flaps in the night. And of course, Pooh and Tigger, too. And you're listening to the great, big, beautiful, bodacious podcast. So stay potty or something. Final footage chart where all the names of the animators were listed out and how much footage there is for the Black Order. And I'd forgotten that my name was on top and I did just over 1,000 feet on uh, the Black Order, which is a whole lot. That's so a I lot. Tell people, Look, if, if you, I, I tell people, I said, if you don't like the Black Order, I have a lot to do with that. <laughs> Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast, Throwback Edition. Why is it a throwback edition? It's a Does that mean it had, wait, 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 is this like Pepsi? Do we have like real sugar <laughs> instead of corn syrup or something? Well, no, it's because our vast history of episodes. Yes. We used to do Disney animators. We used to interview them a lot. Not a lot. We did. Well, we, I don't we know about a lot. But we had we had several on. And it's been it's been a little bit since we It has been on. a while. So I'm going to say this is a throwback to our early collection. <laughs> nice. Okay. Got it. We'll go there. I'm Justin, and I'm with the... I don't have an adjective today. Oh, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> the illustrious. Can, can you, I could just be the disappointed Jamie yeah. this week. <laughs> and you can find us on Facebook, and I'm going to stress this part because I heard it before when I said it, and I, I feel like it was left out, the word the at the beginning, so... The GBB Podcast, Facebook.com slash The GBB Podcast. I'm sure that has cost us thousands yes. of followers. <laughs> well, you know what? I went to one that was just GBB Podcast, and it's not us. It's, it's somebody else. Is there really somebody else with <laughs> yeah. just GBB Podcast? I, I don't so. think so. There, I, I swear to you, go on Twitter. There is someone. And <laughs> Can we send them a cease and desist? Yes, we will. And I think it's like, I don't even know what they do. It's like the man podcast. I don't know. They're like men. I don't know. We'll see. Anyways, we're the GBB podcast, and that I just spent two minutes, so you've probably already clicked the radio <laughs> off. <laughs> the radio that dates me. You've clicked off your MP3 device. <laughs> that still dated you. Let's move on. How shall we? <laughs> right. Who do we have this week, Jamie? Who are we talking to? This week, um, we are just pleased um, and thrilled to have on Andreas Deja who is actually the third Disney legend that we've had on this show. Um, I feel like I should like, have a sound effect for that. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, or you could just give me that, like, the big echoey, uh, ec- big booming echoey voice. Yes. Disney legend, legend, <laughs> legend. So if you're playing the home version, we've had uh, Floyd Norman was on the show, who uh, became a Disney legend for animation. And we had Bill Farmer on the show, who is the voice of Goofy. Um, and this week we've got Andreas Deja, who... Uh, is an animator, uh, if you don't know. And uh, his career uh, with Disney goes back to the mid-80s. He started on The uh, the Black Cauldron, uh, but he very quickly 
became a supervising animator, and he has animated many of probably your favorite characters. He did Roger Rabbit, King Triton in Little Mermaid. Uh, he did Mickey in The Prince and the Pauper. Gaston, Jafar, Scar, Hercules, Lilo, Mama Odie from Princess and the Frog. He did Tigger in the most recent Winnie the Pooh. Um, he is just phenomenal. And he is also one of the very few who knew most of the nine old men personally and worked with them personally. When he started, uh, seven of the nine were still alive and around, and he made it uh, a personal goal of his, I guess you could say, um, to sort of seek them out and learn as much as he could from them. Um, and so he is regarded by many today as being um, sort of the storehouse of knowledge and the, the best resource that we have about um, who these guys were as guys, let alone as animators, you know, just as people. Um, and he's written a new book called The Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspiration from Disney's Great Animators. Um, and calling this an art book is sort of inadequate. It, it focuses, each there's a chapter for each of the nine, guy, nine animators, and it talks about, you know, he, he goes into who they were as people, um, but also they each had unique styles and they each had unique skills that they brought to the films that they worked on. And it's, it's about 400 pages and every page has an illustration. And most of these illustrations are from his own personal collection of line art and sketches. And um, it's, it's, it's so much more than an art book that you would pull off the shelf and just see, you know, full color screenshots of films. It's, it's the actual um, um, sketches and concept drawings and, and individual frames that they, he's reproduced. And it's, it's revealing and it's insightful into the technique and the skill that goes behind um, animation, uh, but it's also just beautiful to flip through. Even if you're not going to read the book, which I highly recommend that you do, um, it's one of those books that you can just flip through endlessly and just be fascinated. And if you're listening to this today, get ready because he is a wealth. He has a wealth of knowledge oh, yeah. and insight, and it's just incredible. If you're a Disney geek at all in any fashion, Disney parks, Disney animation, anything. You're going to love hearing his stories and what he has to tell about his book and the nine old men and everything we talk about. So we're going to play that for you right now. Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This is just an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and I guess we'll go back to when you started at Disney. Um, and, and, I, and this comes across in your new book. Um, you specifically made it a point to seek out the nine old men um, so you could work work with them and learn from them even you know when you first started and you were very young. Um, but only Eric Larson and Willie Reitherman, I think, were still at the company, right? Um, that's true. Uh, even though Frank and Ollie were uh, at the studio on the second floor of the animation building working on their first book, The Illusion of Life. So yeah. they were around and, and we could, uh, you know, seek... Uh, their input and talk to them and all that. But uh, yeah, the others were already outside the studio, like Mark Davis and Mark Carl. They had already left and uh, were not part of the studio. Yeah. Well, so were you were you an anomaly among the young animators? Like, did most people who were starting around the same time did they not seek out those guys for sort of for guidance because they had already left? I don't know. I I, I guess my uh, friends and buddies would talk to them when. Uh, when these guys would come in for a lecture, like if Mark Davis would come in for a lecture on animal anatomy or uh, something like that, then they would maybe 
talk to them afterwards. But there, to me, I, I just needed a bit more time than that <laughs> and, and yeah. uh, quality time, so to speak. So I uh, um, just invited them out to dinners and, and invited me to come over to the, to the house. And so these sort of friendships developed over time. The thing that I found really uh, great is that if uh, any of them, whether it's Mark or Frank and Ollie or Milt, when they found out or when they saw that, they, that you were really serious uh, with uh, your uh, craft and mm-hmm. that you really wanted to learn, and find things out about them. They really gave you all the time that 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 you wanted. It was really awesome. That that does. I mean, that's amazing. But were you so? Were you intimidated? I mean, you were like a twenty twenty something young young kid who started. Oh, just... totally. Because because in those days, and maybe I still am. You know, I I'm actually kind of shy. Yeah. And um, but the thing is, okay, here you are shy. That is not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zero. You know, so you just do it. You know, I. I remember I was, um, I had already started my training program with Eric Larson and uh, I had an exchange of letters with Milt Carl briefly a while before that and um, uh, I wanted to see him. So Milt Carl had moved to San Francisco where he was from originally to be with his uh, children who lived up there and uh, so Eric Larson gave me Milt's phone number and then, well, yeah, you swallow twice or three times before you make that phone call. <laughs> no doubt. You want to say the right things. You don't see the things. You don't want to come across as a geek, and and that can happen quickly if you say the wrong thing. So sure. you really kind of watch what you're saying, <laughs> but uh, then they make you feel so comfortable too. You know when you do get to meet them and face to face. And uh, what I found out is, is is this: if Milt or Mark or Kimball or anyone else, if they at this point don't really want to talk about animation, they want to talk about the weather or something on the news that just happened, then I'd be more than happy to talk to them about that as well. Sure. <laughs> and then toward, toward the end, you guide the conversation to Jungle Book. And how about the gear? And how did that work? You know? Yeah, eventually but, it all uh, comes back to it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, I mean, that just, it's, it's phenomenal. You know I mean? To be, to, to be able to come into a job and, and have living legends literally in in your chosen industry who are you know who have already retired but are still more than willing to, to you know to sit down and talk with you know somebody who hasn't essentially done very much of anything but just really wants to learn you know i mean it i think it really speaks to how these guys really valued the education and and, and sharing the knowledge yeah the the interesting thing is i mean these were obviously very passionate people a mm-hmm. very passionate group of people who made this uh uh, thing called animation, character animation, their, their life. It wasn't a job for them. It was their, it was their life. And when they saw that little fire or that passion in somebody else, they connected with that. They, they reacted to it and they want to give you all the, the advice and input that, that you needed. So they were really, really generous uh, as far as that goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so when you started at Disney, um, you came on and I think your first major project was the Black Cauldron. It was. And uh, you shared a room with Tim Burton. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I've noticed that there's that's kind of a recurring theme among animators, at least, that there tend to be these classes of animators who all come from the same place at the same time, and then they all go on to become really well-known. Um, and, and I'm just wondering if you think something like that is still possible today because the industry has become so fragmented and because so many artists are just going directly online and maybe they're not, you know, going to a professional program or something like that. 
Well, I think it can. And, and you know what? There are actually programs. There are these so-called internships that I think all studios have. Internships for visual development artists, internships for animators, internships for layout, internships for story. So um, I have a few friends that actually made it into those internships. Some are shorter, some are longer. But that's the time or your chance to really be at a, a, in a studio environment and talk, talk to the artists who have worked there, senior artists, and who you admire and want to learn things from. And you can approach them and uh, learn from them. Uh, I remember in the last few years at Disney, we actually had an internship program where one supervising anim- animator got assigned one intern. Mm. And so I, I, I would guide that person through the pencil test and through the footage he or she was doing and uh, mentored that person for, um, I think it was at least six to eight weeks. And then and then if, if successful, uh, there could be more time spent with that person. So that that was part of the program and I think still is in, in many studios. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the Black Cauldron, and I think I might be in the minority of people, but I just adore that movie, and I think it it because it, it it probably stems from it being one of my earliest memories of actually going to the theater and seeing a movie in the theater. And Black Cauldron was one of the earliest that I can just vividly remember. Um, but from what I understand, you were basically just thrown onto that project head first, right? I mean, it was it was your first project, and you ended up doing quite a bit of the animation. True. Yeah, I just found, and I emailed that to the, the producer, John Hahn, uh, who produced Lion King and, and various others, and I emailed that chart to him that uh, it was called, it was, it was under inter-office com- communication, the final footage chart, where all the names of the animators were listed out, and how much footage there is for the Black Order. And I'd, I'd forgotten that my name was on top, and I did just over 1,000 feet on uh, the Black Order, which is a whole lot. That's so a I lot. People, Look, it's if you, I, I tell people, I said, if you don't like the Black Cauldron, I have a lot to do with that. <laughs> I, really, I really do. You can blame me. Because I was on that movie for, for such a long time, yeah. from the beginning to the end. There were a few people who did some work on the Black Cauldron for a year, and then they went on to Mickey's Christmas Carol, which was produced sort of toward the end of the Black Cauldron at the same time. So not everybody was stayed on for the whole span of the, of the film, but... Yeah, uh, I did a lot of footage, but I the the beautiful thing for me on the Black Cauldron was is there wasn't really a, a hard deadline. I mean, they wanted it to be done by a certain time, but then that deadline could be extended. Something like that is unheard of now, yeah, or or happens very very rarely. I think yeah. Pixar just went through that and pushed some of their deadlines yeah. uh, right. or, or film releases. But in those days, uh, the film is going to get done when it, when, when it's going to get done, which yeah. means that it's not that weekly pressure like every Friday, you have to put a certain amount of footage through. Uh, so so that, that kind of system allows you to do all your mistakes. And you have to make them. You know, you're very young, you're very green, you just got out of art school, and you have to do these, these mistakes, and that, and that takes time. And they gave me that time, which is pretty awesome. Does it ever disappoint you that the film didn't perform well and often goes unmentioned? Oh no! The, I mean, the, the box office. I mean, those are known known uh, numbers. You know, and they're right. publicized, and uh, people 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 know when a film flops, right. and people talk about it too. And uh, we know, and we heard that the Black Cauldron wasn't doing very well, and we were bummed out. And um, uh, the next one, the most detective, great most detective, did marginally better. The studio had really high hopes for that because it came in and did a smaller budget. It had a, it had a bit more humor to it, and I think their personalities were developed better. But even that one didn't do very well. So 
And that's the time we had, um, around the time we had, uh, um, actually before Mouse Detective came out, and we had a big management change. And uh, I just um, remember hearing from friends saying, you know what, I just heard these new guys coming out of a story meeting, and they said, it takes how long to make these films? <laughs> and it costs how much to do them? <laughs> like they were in disbelief, you know, because the returns weren't even there. Even Fox Downs, it's sort of marginal. And so I thought, ooh, this doesn't sound very good. And I just got into America, you know, and I had a job at the studio. But it almost sounded like the end. Uh, they were going to shut it down. And they would have shut the animation department down had it not been for Roy Disney. Because he stepped wow. in and said, now, you guys, wait a minute. This is the heart and soul of the company. Uh, if we stop animation, we don't have anything new for the parks, for, for other departments, merchandise, and so forth. So we have to revitalize it. And then they... People like Jeffrey Capson were completely grew into it and uh, loved it, and then everything picked up again. So when people ask me now, you know, is animation, could the animation dead now? Well, yeah, it's dormant. Yeah, I think that would be fair to say. Feature animation as the uh, 2D art form is pretty dormant, but I think through it, you know, and who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. It's just need one hit, one, one hit from Disney or mm -hmm. an outside company to get uh, people's attention, and then it, it could be back in full swing. So exactly. you never know. It could just be, hopefully it's just, you know, like you were saying, hopefully it's just a pendulum swing and, and one good hit yeah. will bring 2D back because I think there will be a lot of people who would be very happy to see it return. Yep. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I uh, understand. I was just at the CTN Expo here in Burbank, an annual huge animation expo. And there are people from all over the world who come and, uh, uh, you know, and talk to artists, senior artists. And there's still so much love out there for drawn animation. Mm -hmm. People really want it. It just has to be the right one, you know, the, the yeah. right story, maybe a, visually a fresh approach. And you can you can get people uh, interested in that medium again. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what's what's heartening is that, you know, a lot of the, you know, the quote unquote old timers like like you and Glenn Keane, you know, you're still working and you're still making these traditional hand-drawn animated films. They happen to be shorts. But they're they're just phenomenally beautiful, and it's it's showing that you can still do so much with with traditional techniques that you know maybe you can't do with CG or you, or it's just not being done, you know, and that and that looks different. I think one of the biggest complaints about um, you know animation nowadays is that so much of it just looks the same. Um, yeah. But then you look at something. Um, you know, like one, one, the shorts that that get nominated every year, or the short, you know, the, you know, Glenn Keane short, or you know, or something that that um, is put out there that's obviously a labor of love, and it's just it, it's almost mind blowing because it looks so different. Yeah, I mean, I I actually had high hopes with uh, CG coming in and helping, maybe possibly helping uh, the two D style change and and evolve. And they did this in a stunning way as a, as a short film, uh, a short film that Disney did uh, a while ago. I think it's about 10 years ago, possibly a little bit more. It was called Lorenzo. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's actually on the new disc that came out on Blu-ray or DVD, uh, yeah. Disney's uh, shorts, shorts or something like that. Yeah. Like the most recent ones. And it's all full of Elsa and, and uh, uh, Frozen and all that. But amongst the, the list of films listed is one that's called Lorenzo. And that is uh, the most the most beautiful hybrid of 2D and CG animation to date. Mm -hmm. It hasn't stepped up from that. So the way they did this, this movie, just in a nutshell, it was all animated by hand about this uh, very arrogant uh, blue cat in South America 
somewhere in some big city and uh, uh, intimidating uh, some street cats who are outside the, the, win- the window we're in or of this building with this uh, cat is um, just enjoying a shrimp cocktail, basically. Uh-huh. And uh, and then things happen. You know, there's this one cat that has, this outside cat has a magical power and jinxes this fat blue cat. And the idea comes from Joe Grant, you know, one of the uh, um, oldest, old-timers at Disney. But he felt really high. I mean, he felt strong that this short of this should be made. But then the beauty again was, after it was all hand-drawn and the motion was worked out and the, and the, and then the timing and staging and all that, storytelling, Rather than doing it with the usual self-painted look, we have flat paint, you know, from one edge of the figure to the to the other edge. They um, created a program where uh, the color shapes are actually look like they were done with brush strokes, very mm. rough. Yeah. And, and 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 the background reflected that too. If you had a street scene of a of a house, and there was a window and a door, and there was a lamppost on the side. So those are just brush strokes. It was very very uh, abstract almost, but you, of course you would still see the environment, but because it was so so rough, you wouldn't think it would work in 3D, but when the, yet when the camera did move, the perspective changed, and it gave you this, oh, oh my, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just this beautiful combination of um, uh, 2G and CG, and uh, this, is, this came out at a time where Pixar hadn't joined Disney yet. They were still separate up there, right. and John Lasseter got a, a print of it, and he sent out an email uh, to the to, to all of Pixar and said, "You guys, we're gonna in the theater downstairs. We're gonna run this film on the loop, this new film from Disney, and uh, we're gonna run it all all day. And everybody must go and see this because it just seems like a new door has opened, uh, you know, for where animation can go." And I was so encouraged by that. That's exactly the way I saw it. Yeah, um, you know, because we we can we could certainly uh, apply that idea to a feature film, not the same look, but right. the the idea to take pencil drawings and just make them look like something else, like a watercolor or a yep. painting, mm-hmm. you know, but maintaining the integrity of that rich, full motion that two D yeah. gives you. And, and that, then the film was forgotten. Yeah, it went into into somebody's drawer, and uh, <laughs> sure, it came out on DVD now, but it's sort of not really relevant at this point which really saddens me yeah and it's that style is um other people are playing with it too i don't know i'm sure you've you've seen but uh the dam keeper which came out um yes last year or this year and also the uh the studio ghibli um the tale of princess kaguya i mean they're they're both a a hybrid of hand-drawn and computer animation but it's made to look like it's almost like a moving watercolor um right. or moving pencil lines and it's just gorgeous and that style i think is, is phenomenal and i would love to see more feature mm-hmm. films of that style yeah you take a style like that or or or, or a brand new style you know mm-hmm. it hasn't been done mm-hmm. and just combine it with the with the commercial story with rich characters uh with a good sense of humor and, and all that and you really have something stunning yeah, uh, you know, so it just uh, takes uh, a studio taking that that risk. Yeah, that's what it is. It's it's somebody willing to take the risk and and think that it'll it's worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. So in your own work, you're known for uh, doing the villains Gaston, Jafar, and Scar. Was it by choice that you did those, or was it just a coincidence that it happened? It was a little bit of both. Uh, when I got the first villain assigned to me, it was uh, the first time being Gaston. 
Um, uh, I had, we had just finished The Little Mermaid, and uh, I remember the directors uh, from Beauty and the Beast said, well, we kind of like the way you draw hands and mm-hmm. anatomy, and you seem to know a little bit about that. And uh, it's very important for Gaston because he's a big buff guy who's very into himself, and uh, but drawing-wise, it has to be handled carefully. And so I took on that assignment, which was difficult because he was drawn against type, you know, he had to look look like a handsome dude, but to find out through the story he's mm-hmm. actually a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was that was a little a little tricky. Um, and then when it came to Jafar, um, those directors liked I guess what I'd done with uh, Gaston and said, "Well, would you like to do Jafar for us?" And I said, "Sure, you know, villain, <laughs> great parts. How can you turn down?" Um, and then, but but when it came to Lion King, the next one. Um, I was not not even thinking about doing doing Star because I mm-hmm. thought, well, obviously it's going to be somebody else's turn, right. and um, I should probably maybe look at doing Simba, Simba as a cop, Simba as an adult, or Rafiki, or supervise a different character. But then something happened. They um, we, they hadn't cast the animators yet to any characters, and then word got around that the studio had just uh, hired Jeremy Irons to do the voice mm-hmm. for Star. And I thought, oh no, this is just too good to be true. <laughs> How can I get involved in this? You know, it's not my turn, but I think I, you know, I think I can do something with it, or really could do something with this. So I talked to the directors and um, uh, Rob Minkoff and Roger Ellis, and I said, I know it's not my turn, and know other people should probably do this character, but. Jeremy Irons' voice just gives me so many ideas. I just close my eyes and I see stuff. Oh, yeah. The way he read certain lines. Yeah. And, and they looked at me and they just, they just said, well, we kind of had your mind anyway. For <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, all right. You know? <laughs> um, so that's how that came, came about. I mean, um, but, but then the offers kept coming. You know, they offered right. me to do um, uh, Frodo and Hunchback. And I said, well, after having done three, uh, I should probably switch and maybe do an assignment like Esmeralda. But she had already been assigned to another animator, so I was a little bit late uh, with that. And, um, and then even Hades from from uh, Hercules. Yeah. Uh, but I said the same thing. If I, I said if I have a choice here, I would probably rather do a, a different character type like Hercules, who I, I haven't done, just to spread my wings and do something right. different. Sure. I know Hercules won't get all the all the laughs, but uh, maybe I should do something like that. So then I got assigned to Hercules. Is there something about the villains that's uh, really fun to animate? Well, they're they're the most expressive ones, aren't they? I right. mean, they 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 really have the broadest range, and they want to turn the world upside down according to what 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 they want. You know, they're really motivated and they drive the the story. The the heroes want to just put everything back together to where it's normal and nice, mm-hmm. and and marry the 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 love interest and and that's it. You know, so uh, the the villains usually have. Uh, a much bigger drive and, and, and motivation, um, and that means uh, you can be broader in your treatment, in your animation. You can you can be more intense. Uh, you have a, you just have a bigger range. Uh, right. And, and I would say in animation, uh, probably in live action too. It's usually the villains or the sidekicks because they're also broad and funny often. That uh, are the juiciest parts you know, for for an animator. Yeah, I talking about great characters. Um, I'm also a huge fan of Lilo and Stitch. Um, and again, 
just like with the Black Aldrin, I might be in the minority, but my favorite character from that movie is not Stitch, but it's Lilo, um, who you animated. And I'm just wondering, what, at the beginning, how did you approach her as a character and, and as her look? Because she certainly does not fit the mold of what people think of when they think of a young female character from Disney. No, I mean, she, she looks different yeah. uh, than uh, than other Disney girls. Uh, they saw her as... But in the whole film, the whole character cast is stylized, and it's really based on uh, director Chris Sanders's personal drawing style. This is how he how he draws, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we all loved it. And there was no intent to change the design or alter anything that he had done. It was just my my job as an animator was just uh, uh, taking what he had done in Nilo's storyboard. There was a little inconsistency in the way he drew her. Uh, which is, of course, is fine for storyboards, but right. in animation, you have to kind of boil it down and turn it subtly, and it has to make sense. So I, uh, that was my uh, job really to do that. But uh, not knowing that much about her personality yet, um, she looked a little bit like a character in terms of style, like the Disney 40s, like very squashy, stretchy, you yeah. know, broad, even broad. I thought, oh, this is going to be like Fred Moore animation. This is going to be fun. Um, and it was the opposite. Because uh, yeah. the story material was so real and didn't call for any kind of a, a active type of or, or broad acting specifically for her for, for that, that character, she was this lonely little girl who had issues at school, who had issues at home, and uh, she, she all the love she had, and she puts forward toward this dog that she just adopted, not 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 knowing that um, he's not a dog. And so these are these are these are like little things, and they have to be acted out in a in a more nuanced way uh, than than I thought. But 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 then I, I really liked it. I really liked diving into into her head and um, sort of feeling those those emotions. There was a lot of sort of sadness about her, but 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 also love. Yeah. And um, just to give you one example, um, or maybe even two. Uh, when the social worker comes by for the first time, who's this big guy and very intimidating, fills the whole door for him. He knocks at the door, checking up on uh, Lilo's sister Nani and seeing how she's doing. And Lilo just looks up at him and she says, Hi, hi, how's it going? Or whatever. She just says, Did you ever kill anybody? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And and I, I sort of um, shifted her head sideways. Um, you know, and it became a, a very subtle scene because that's the way you act that that, that out. They, they, I mean, a scene like that doesn't require a lot of hand motion or arm gesturing. Yeah. It's just very, very subtle. And many, many scenes uh, with her were actually like that. Yeah. yeah you, you know, you mentioned, you know, she look, looks just the, her design. She looks like a character out of the 40s. And I never even thought about that, but she does look like she would be perfectly at home in like an old Silly Symphonies um short or something like that but yeah you know, once you see her in 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 the movie like she's such a modern deep um thoroughly thought out character that um she's so much more than than what you might think of is sort of like a you know about for lack of a better word two-dimensional character that that so many of the silly symphonies characters were but um yeah i just love her i just love her i think she's <laughs> such a great character well the, the the film story is so unusual it's um I coming in, I thought, oh, this is a science fiction story. You know, you got Stitch from outer space, and she, 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 she friends him. You know, finally finds out that he's not a dog; he's a, he's an alien, and it was sort of a fantasy science fiction treatment. And then, 
then I started animating, and I was involved in, in the early sequence where the two sisters, Nani and Lilo, are involved in a big argument and a fight, and uh, Lilo was sent to her room and all that stuff. And, and I have an older sister and a younger sister, and uh, I thought, wait a minute, okay, do you have, we have the science fiction thing coming in, but this is real life. Yeah. This is totally like real life, because I, I, I remember my two sisters arguing uh, when we were all younger, and... Um, and then you say, "Oh, I get it." So it, it, it has it has deep grounds in in reality and situations that exist now nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, so then then I like the movie even more because it yeah. had both. It had science fiction and that. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a real deep emotional story with that science fiction layer. That you know, it's a substantive layer, but it really is just sort of a layer over top of what the real real heart of the story is. Right, right. Yeah. No, we all we all loved it. Um, yeah. um, it. In terms of crawling into a character and feeling that character's emotions, I think that was a new thing for me to really go there and uh, and uh, portray again, you know, in, 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 uh, emotions like loneliness or or uh, feeling like an outsider. You know, these are these are things that I really or character concepts that I hadn't really done before. Yeah. So let's turn to the nine old men. For those who are unfamiliar, what's the short story about who these guys were, how they got the name, and why it was these nine guys? Well, it's a, these are, this is a group of artists that were the most loyal to, to Disney and stayed there for, the, for, for really a long, long, long time and worked on all these features. There were people that preceded them, people like Fred Moore, Ham Lusk, uh, Norm Ferguson that really taught them. Um, so they were, they were brilliant men who preceded them. But again, throughout all those decades, um, these are the guys. And uh, um, when I think Walt actually uh, uh, mentioned the, the term nine old men probably only once during the meeting, sort of jokingly, <laughs> uh, in, in uh, regards to the Supreme Court judges, you know, who are also nine. Yeah. He said, well, I, I have nine too. They just happen to be animators. <laughs> and they weren't even old when he when he when he coined that phrase. But then this is it's just one of those things that marketing likes because <laughs> right. it's like a concept and you can you can use it, uh, you know, you can tell you can tell audiences so just like the Supreme Court, you know, or Disney also had the same thing happening but they were all anim animation. The term sort of stuck. Um but but they really were the the most uh, loyal ones and also the ones that could carry a lot of footage and developing characters and, and so forth. There were others. There were really there were a few others who were not very happy, of course, being ex- excluded. Uh, there's an animator who's still around called uh, Don Lask. He's about 105 now, and I had a chance to interview him with Pete Doctor at the beginning of the year, and uh, he was able to tell sort of his story, you know, from being an um, outsider of that group and what it was, was like for him because he uh, he had done some wonderful stuff in even in the early features he did the Arabian fish dance in Fantasia mm. you know, all those fish choreographed and really beautiful things and uh, even later on he uh, um, what he did Figaro with Eric Goldberg and Cleo uh, I mean with uh, Eric Larson he also um, animates when the when the fairies in Sleeping Beauty uh, trying to come up with a dress for Aurora, this whole fight where the colors change back and forth, having this these pixie dust fireworks going on, and that's all 
his work. So anyway, he was capable of really doing wonderful personality stuff, but uh, for some reason he always felt like he uh, was given the continuity scenes, you know. So Frank Thomas had done this section, and then Mark David had did this section in the film, and he would do the filling in ones. And I'm not quite sure why it turned out that way. Maybe he was a little slower, mm-hmm. or maybe um, he, he worked better when the characters were developed and he could tune in easier, you know. But but anyway, these these nine guys could really take on uh, uh, whole sequences and develop them um, and refine them uh, in uh, as far as continuity and and all that. But also just do a lot of footage. Was that a term of affection that that was used at the time, or did it sort of develop later as their legend began to grow? Like I said, Walt only used it. I, I think, I mean, to my knowledge, once during, during the 50s. Yeah. And then, and then uh, particularly after Walt died, it was, it was sort of a juicy term yeah. that, that uh, could, be, could be used in connection with, uh, with uh, Disney animation, you know. And so it was, it was picked up uh, by, by management and, and uh, sure. uh, people like that and became, became a popular term. So in an industry dominated by 3D CGI animation, what are some things we can learn from the the nine old men today? Oh, it's just beyond motion. I mean, uh, look, look at some of their most beautiful scenes, frame by frame. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to be learned, uh, how they animated cartoony things like uh, uh, cartoony characters uh, like Mickey Mouse and... and Donald Duck, or, or and then realistic things like like Bambi. You know, they um, they they were they really um, researched their their material mm-hmm. or the the character concept before they animated. I mean, to them it was really important to and to Walt Disney too to base your animation on on reality to caricature it. But if you don't know if you don't have that base if you don't know a deer inside out in terms of anatomy and how it moves. And why it moves a certain way, then you can't you can't really caricature this because because you just don't know. So um, so they they brought that to the table, but also um, just acting choices and character relationships and how one character would react to another. Um, just one example: Captain Hook and Smee. You know, Frank did uh, Hook and uh, Ollie did Smee, and uh, the way that's worked out, it's seamless. It's just that these two characters uh, work so well together. Me is somewhat intimidated by Captain Hook, but it's his boss, so so he's he's almost trying to be mean. He doesn't really <laughs> want to hurt Tinkerbell or even even kidnap her, but he's being told, of course, by by Hook. So um, they were able to create these wonderful relationships, Baloo and Mowgli. That relationship that changes throughout. You know, when Mowgli is so disappointed when Baloo finally reveals he's going to take it back to the man village because they have been buddies and this friendship had been built up for such a long time throughout the film. These are really um, uh, demanding uh, and, and great uh, accomplishments that these guys did, you know. Yeah. So that, I think, is what, what I take away from, from their work. It's not just the, the technical capability mm-hmm. of, of moving things beautifully, but also getting inside a character's head and really animating inside out, animating those feelings from the inside out. You had previously said that you were interested in writing um, a book for each of the nine. 
Um, now that you've written this book, though, is there is that still something that you want to pursue, or do you feel like you got out what you wanted to say? Um, as far as their their lives uh, and their work between John Kainmaker, who did the big book on the Nine Old Men a few right. years ago, right. and mine, I think we pretty much covered it. What what I would love to do because there is so much more art. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's only so much art you can put into one book. Luckily, uh, Focal gave me 400 pages, which I will, will always be grateful for. Yeah, because uh, that's a lot. It is, um, it's a go- and it's gorgeous. There's so much artwork that we had to cut out and, and so many scenes that I couldn't write or, or talk about or publish. Uh, so I would love to do like an encore book, but just visually, just more of their work with maybe captions because yeah. uh, they, they just did so much while they were at Disney and it's it's all great and it's all worth talking about. So I would I would, I would love to do like a second part you know, of my book sometime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's 400 pages and it's gorgeous. Every page is illustrated, but it still feels like we're just scratching the surface of what we what we could be seeing. Yeah, it's it's I mean, basically, it's it's impossible to take the work of nine geniuses, you know, who mm-hmm. work for Disney, like, like each like 40 years or something like that, to put that into one book. Yeah, you can only highlight, you can only highlight and and, and really try to profile their own individual temperaments and artistic sensibilities. You can you can, only, you can only stretch the surface because there's so much there. Sure. I mean, since you knew many of them personally, how much research did you have to do for the book and how much did you just sort of draw from your own experience and what you already knew about them? Yeah, I didn't really have to go into research mode that much because um, all those years at Disney, I made it sort of a habit of studying their work. Right. Uh, one, great, one great tool were these so-called drafts um, and those are... Uh, there's one draft per movie, and each scene is listed up from beginning to end, and you can really see, and and each scene is listed by animator as well, so you, you can really find out who did what. And then once once you study that, you can see certain strengths, but also certain weaknesses, that this animator was better here, but not as good maybe yeah. there, and this one didn't click with that assignment as much. And it then, then they become human to you because they were not great at, at everything. You know? I mean, there were some that could handle just about any assignment, but uh, there, there, there were times uh, but there, but where they also struggled, you know. And also, uh, having known them for all those years and all these stories that they told me about certain characters, uh, I, I didn't have to go into, like I said, into research mode. I just recalled these conversations, you know, and put that into, into the book. That must have been nice <laughs> that, you, you know, you, you got the 400 pages that could just almost literally just kind of roll off your the top of your head and you just, you know, figure out the hard part was probably deciding which art to include rather than what, what words to put on the page. Well, I had one one more challenge, though. English is not my first language, <laughs> if I may point that out. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, writing a blog and little blog bits here and there, like I have been for the last four years, is a little different than writing a chapter on an animator and having uh, having a flow in, in in your writing, you know, uh, yeah. making a point and having it entertaining a little bit too, maybe. Uh, that's And then the whole spelling thing, the commas and all that. Um, and I said, I was talking to Focal Press about that. I said, am I, I going to get some help from you guys? <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, we're going to put the commas in the right place, put the stories <laughs> and every, everything has to come for you the, the, the writing has to come from you so <laughs> yeah. that took me a little while it was in the end it was a fantastic learning experience oh i bet I, mean, I have to say 
to, to, to do this. Uh, so I did appreciate that aspect of it. Yeah. Are you going to do a German version of it? A German version? They yeah. haven't asked me yet. <laughs> my, this is the first time somebody asked me that. Really? I could <laughs> Couldn't I? I actually could. You absolutely um, could. I think that you should. And then uh, there should be a Japanese version because uh, 2D animation is so big in, it's huge, in Japan. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. But Soko does have books that have been translated. So hopefully mine will yeah. follow that path as well. Yeah. You're a, an animation collector, right? And if I'm not mistaken, you have quite an incredible collection of Disney art. Yeah, I I, I was lucky. I mean, uh, it was kind of slow going early on. You go to these auctions, whether it's Howard Lowry or Sotheby's or Christie's, and when they had auctions, and you pick out pieces that you like, and sometimes you get them, you win, and sometimes you you, you didn't. But it was slow going. But I focused early on, and, and still still do actually our animators' rough drawings. And because once you look at the cleaned up version, those drawings were done by assistants and they right. don't have the vitality and the thought process that you see in the animators' uh, drawings. So those are the ones that fascinate me because I, 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 I can tell from a drawings or a sequence of drawings if the animator had struggled with it, erased a lot, you know, <laughs> or if the animator had a good time. Even from the wrinkles on the paper, from the flipping, you can see, oh, he, he really messed with this. There are a lot of wrinkles here. He flipped this back and forth so many times until he got it right. So that, these the drawings tell you a whole lot. And then um, I had worked through mutual friends that Ollie Johnson, who had kept a sizable chunk of art from, from his years at Disney, was wanting to uh, sell it. And rather than having an, an auction, having the stuff go all over the place, he was interested in maybe one person purchasing it. So I, I mm. talked to Ollie and we made a deal. And I took over his collection and the same with Frank's later on also. So I do have yeah. the art. And some of some of it is, is in the book. Whenever you, you see um, rough drawings, they come from my collection. Whenever you see tight cleanup drawings, then they come from the animation research library at Disney. How big is your collection, do you think? Oh gosh, I don't know. It's it's a few thousand pieces. Yeah. Um, I uh, you know uh, I wish they had the studio even had kept all of the rough drawings, all of the uh, the animators' first pass drawings because because the information in those is so valuable. But they didn't. They didn't. They they actually threw them out, or oh, wow. that kind of art was in, encouraged to be taken home or tossed or anything. What they kept were the cleanup versions, the the, the tied down versions. Mm -hmm. So that's in the archives. But they didn't keep the roughs and. But then what happened, usually like, uh, clean up, uh, a person like uh, Dale Oliver, who worked for uh, Frank, Frank and Ollie over the years, he would uh, uh, be finished cleaning up the scene on, you know, on new sheets of paper, and then he would look at the roughs and say, well, that's too beautiful to throw away. I'm going to take it home. Yeah. So he also kept a whole lot of stuff that uh, eventually after he passed away, his family made available for auctions, through auctions and stuff like that. Wow. I, I think that's one of the the unique and aspects of this book and what really sets it apart and makes it so gorgeous is that it, it is just filled with these rough drawings and pencil sketches. And, you know, you know, you didn't make any effort as you reproduce the images to sort of get rid of all those background scribbles and the erasing erasure marks. And I think that's something that you don't often see in art books. Um, and I think that, yeah, it, people, people are trying to do to present the art in a pristine way. Yeah. And to me, like I said earlier on, all that, that looseness, all that messing with the drawing, all that line 
work, uh, the erased drawings or the erased lines are even informative. They're so revealing. You can, you can, you can say what they, what they didn't like, you know. Yeah. It's revealing and, and it teaches you a whole lot. So, I, again, I try to put as many rough drawings in the book as possible, but sometimes you have to talk about characters that you don't have artwork from. And then I, uh, I refer to the research library and that staff was just incredible. They, 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 they gave me all the time that I needed to finish the book. They were just incredible. Um, you, you said that, uh, you know, the rough drawings that you re reproduced in the book come from your collection and the rest came from, from the archives. What kind of access did you get to their collection? I had full access, um, but it was, I was in a unique position. Um, I've known that staff over there at the research library for, for decades. I, you know, I, I know these people because I had uh, spent so much time researching things while I was animating, whether it was on downtime or um, evenings or something like that. But I, I, I would go over there and uh, and study the artwork. In, in, in the old days, when we, were, when we were still on the Burbank lot, we could actually, it was just like a library. You could go down where the art was housed and, in those days, under the campaign building, there was sort of this basement where they kept all the all the scenes, mm -hmm. and you could you could check out two or three scenes, take them, take the, the actual art to your room, and keep them for two or three weeks, <laughs> and then and then uh, <laughs> turn it back in and check out more. So I would uh, always Xerox a few drawings to study them because I knew I had to give the scene back. But mm -hmm. that's how it was handled early on, and then later on when they uh, 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 got their own state-of-the-art facility, uh, then it was decided all this handling yeah. uh, by hand, by human hands, is not really good for the art. Not so good for it, it, it. Yeah, it leaves stains and mm -hmm. becomes oily and all that. So then we could act, actually uh, ask for Xeroxes and then the the uh, ARL, like we call it, animation research library, they would send us Xeroxes and now it scans. You know, yeah, if you're right. on a research project and you need to have access to certain scenes or artwork, they would send you scans. But to, to, to me, these are like friends of mine. And so I was in a unique position uh, to work with friends on mm -hmm. who helped me with this book. That's great. Now, this is something I'm really curious about. In your opinion, if I say I'm an animation student, what films should be the th uh, films I should go and watch first to learn from? Um, I would say start with the earlier work rather than the more sophisticated later work. I wouldn't start with 101 Dalmatians and Sleeping Beauty because those are so sophisticated that you might get uh, overwhelmed by the stylization of movement and drawing. Um, I would start with earlier films like um, The Dwarfs and Snow White, Terry Moore stuff. Uh, which, I know he's not one of the kind of men, but he was sort of the, 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 the guy who established the kind, the kind of drawing at Disney in those days, and 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 his work is very pliable. You know, the animation principles uh, like swash and stretch and so forth are more visible in 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 the early animation. Also in short films, uh, silly symphonies, uh, Pinocchio to uh, character like Stromboli. It's easier to study, and you take away lessons easier than like let's say Shere Khan who is so uh, subtle and uh, right. designed so carefully, you know. That's an element that came in later because they wanted to keep challenging themselves. But as a newcomer, and I don't know if you are one, but uh, it, they, these, these later movies are overwhelmed because you look at the drawing and you mm -hmm. almost want to give up. Yeah, right. Because you realize this, this stuff isn't only beautifully animated, but the level of draftsmanship, it's like 
there's a mastery in there which is uh, blinding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that when you were, you've said that when you were a kid, Jungle Book was a huge influence on you. Um, and, and I was uh, actually in the audience there somewhere doing your D23 accepted speech for the Disney Legend ceremony. And you had joked with um, Bob Iger. You said, you know, the Jungle Book is incredibly popular in Germany and that they should build a Jungle Book ride for Disneyland Paris because all the Germans would come. Um, but just for fun here, if you were hired as an Imagineer for that project, that Jungle Book, attra- Jungle Book attraction, what would you want it to be? I, I didn't. I, I would want a ride that actually projects character a little bit more than, than action. Yeah. They arrived right. like uh, with the Son of the Soul character, like Splash Mountain, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, actually has both. You know, you have the, the character setups, uh, uh, all the animatronics, and then you have the deep fall and all that. But what, what, what people like about Jungle Book really are the characters. And I think whatever you would do, uh, and, uh, if a ride like that comes to be, is, is really... Uh, reconnecting with the personalities, you know. Let's see, who was Bagheera, and what did Baloo right. do, and you know, really make it make it a character-driven ride. That would be that would be the interest. If, if uh, I would do it, right. I'd love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fun, and I, I, I insist because they do having uh, from what I read, you know, online and yeah, from 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 friends, Germany is uh, a strong. Uh, economy in Europe and yet the Germans are not coming you know so there's something something funky going on there and yeah. I, I, w- I would think if I would be a studio boss okay what do the Germans want for Pete's sakes you know okay <laughs> they find out well they love Jungle Book still after all these years that's their favorite Disney movie so let's do something with that right. that's how this whole thing came about and I'm I, I was I was thrilled that Bob Iger had a, a uh, fun reaction to yeah, my, yeah. To my uh, comments. He was thinking. He was thinking about it. <laughs> well, I heard. Under, I heard afterwards that actually um, that my notion sort of made them made them think. And oh, good. That, good. Them, that there might be. I don't, I don't know if this is really happening. There, there might be something in their works. Oh, that, that, you know, Jungle funny. Book is one of those properties that is just in terms of the parks. It's so underrepresented. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's almost nowhere in the parks. And I think that would be something rather than just clone something that already exists. That would be a, a just a great attraction to draw, not just the Germans, but I think anybody who loves that movie. Yeah, it's equally popular in in, in, uh, in the UK. Uh, uh, you know, people just grew up with those characters from from my generation, but also later generations. And uh, you couldn't fail with it, right? Like this, right. you just couldn't fail. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. What do you have any thoughts about the live adaption of of the Jungle Book movie? <laughs> well, I have to see it. You know, I uh, uh, the, the trailer that they have online right now looks looks great. I thought, and I have to wait and see uh, how they're going to do the the acting scenes. You right, know, yeah. a live action kid with a with a CG blue and how that works. Yeah. Because these are going to be talking animals, I, I, I understand, and so um, it can look a little tricky. So, so I'm going to hold my hold my judgment until I see the film. Yeah, as, as am I. I'm yeah. reserving judgment. The trailer looks intriguing, but I need to see some talking animals first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Are you familiar with? Um, there's a couple of videos on YouTube, and it's sort of the reaction to them made waves earlier this year. Um, they, they were they, they highlighted the recycled animation scenes from older Disney films. Um, and they, what they really have focused on, at least in, in the first video, were the similarities in, in some dance sequences between Snow White and Robin Hood and Jungle Book. Um, and they are almost clones of one another. Um, 
and I, and when when the videos came out and you know some online news sites sort of started reporting on it they sort of started they they ran with that you know this was done to save time and money it's an example of how disney cuts corners and um that's sort of just how they ran with it um floyd norman though he was on the show and he actually claims that it was willie reitherman um because most of the films that are used as an example were films that he was involved with. And it was just uh, an example of him trying to play it safe because they were sequences he knew people would like, they worked in the past and that it was actually cheaper and easier to, to animate from scratch um, rather than try to mimic and clone what had already been done. Um, and the reason I'm saying all this and asking this is because you knew Willie personally. So I'm wondering if you had any insight about, about why those scenes would have been redone so closely. I think it was all done in an effort to save money uh, because Woody was the one put in charge, you know, as you know, after, after Walt passed away and he got all the pressure from upper management uh, in terms of costs and keep the costs down. The costs were just exploding. So anything he could do, uh, he would try to, to save some money on the way. Now, there are people who think, even animators, that this didn't save money mm -hmm. and uh, doing those scenes over again or doing them fresh would have, would have taken as much time and money, particularly Milt Carl. I talked to him about this way back and he said he really disliked that approach and it, it actually embarrassed him. Uh, he said, I, he said I, I, I would rather to see a scene not animated as well, but, but animated fresh yeah, right. than, re, than reusing animation. But then that way would be more uh, honest. So it wasn't very popular within the studio, within the group of animators, but, but it, it was just a way of really trying, trying to save money. That's really all it was. Yeah. Interesting. So it's interesting. That, I mean, because we've, it, it, we've heard it both ways. You know, we've heard that, mm -hmm. that it's, it was an effort to save money and time. And then, you know, I've also heard the claim that, it, no, it didn't save any money or time. It actually took longer and it would have been easier and cheaper just to start, just to animate a fresh scene. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It is. It is one of those things that we later on, you know, I mean, when, when my when my group of animators uh, did uh, our features that we worked on, we wouldn't even think about doing that. You know, yeah. it, it just didn't 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 cross our minds. We just didn't, didn't do it. Yeah. Well, and I imagine as an animator, it's a lot more fun to work on something that's fresh rather than oh, I've got to go back to this other mm -hmm. movie and just tr basically <laughs> trace what the other people had already done. Yeah, because every situation is new. Everything should be specific and be truthful to, to the moment of the film right then and there. And it shouldn't recall previous films. So I, I'm, so I'm not really a big fan of that. Yeah. So Jamie mentioned we had Floyd Norman on the show, and he also had some great stories about working with some of the nine old men and with Walt himself. Did you and Floyd ever work together? We didn't. I've known Floyd for many, many years. Uh, but when I started at the studio, I believe he was working in the Mickey Mouse comic strip department mm -hmm. in the Roy Disney building. So he was not involved in uh, animation at that point. They don't, he came back and uh, uh, did some fantastic work on some of the Pixar films, even on Toy Story and all yeah. that. Uh, but I never interacted with him on uh, uh, any films. I just know him socially and I think he's a great guy. He's mm -hmm. a fantastic guy. Yeah. Um, let's quickly... Um, talk about your own film that you're working on, Mushka. Um, can you share anything about its development? You know, where are you in the process? When might be, we may be able to see it? I would say that uh, right now I'm just in the, in the middle of it. The story's all worked out. We just finished uh, finally the, uh, the animatic, which is this, the story reel with all 10 voices. 
so I'm going to have to get going and find some actors who record those lines. There isn't much dialogue in, in, in the film, which mm-hmm. is a fact that I'm very proud of because I didn't want to have a very talky film. Um, but there are a few lines that have to be said and those need to be recorded. So, but, but the main thing is that uh, the story work is pretty much done. And uh, seeing it the other day for the first time in its full length, all those 25 minutes, I'm, I'm really, really pleased with it and uh, proud. And uh, I think it flows really well. And uh, you get involved emotionally in those characters. Um, I have animated one whole uh, montage sequence at the beginning of the film where you see the boy, I mean, the, the tiger and the girl growing up mm-hmm. and bonding. That's all done. And then I also have bits and pieces uh, throughout the film, so I would say I have maybe four minutes animated, uh, but uh, I made a point now of not making any plans for the rest of the year or throughout next year. I would just stay put and finish it with a small group of people. Nice. And I think I can I can finish it by the end of the by, by the end of next year. Oh, that'd be great. I'm really I, just from what I've seen. I mean, it looks it looks beautiful. Um, but from the you know the concept art and the sketches that I've seen online, you put up a you know a brief teaser trailer. Um, it, it, it definitely looks like it calls back to the jungle book, which kind of makes sense as it, you know, that was one of your earliest influences, but, um, and I guess that would sort of bring you full circle, but do you think that's a fair statement? I mean, do you think that there's a lot of jungle book, that kind of sensibility in it? I think a little bit. Yeah. And, and after, after all, jungle book has had a fantastic tiger and I think mine will be decent too. Yeah. They are totally different character concepts. Yeah. Uh, um, so it has that in common. Uh, I actually did start out thinking maybe uh, my story should be set in India uh, because we had early on a, a concept about a girl and a, and a tiger growing up. And when the tiger gets big, there's trouble because the, the dead tiger is worth a lot of money and mm-hmm. so forth. And India came to mind because the, mm-hmm. that's where most people perceive tigers are. And then uh, my, my story colleague said, well, because of Jungle Book and all that, um, maybe we should just take it elsewhere. And wh- where are the biggest tigers in the world? They are in eastern Russia, in, right. in Siberia. So I thought, well, that's a, an, uh, an area that really hasn't been developed in animated features or in any animated feature film or, or film for that matter. So there'll be a cool place to put the story. And um, and then, then the issue was, now, when would you want to set this? At, at what sort of period of in, in the time? And then I researched it. And it has a little bit to do with con- uh, conserving tigers, conservation, mm-hmm. and wildlife. And the Russians started to get serious doing that sort of in the 70s. And that, that's where my story starts, and it ends in the early 80s. So uh, that's, that, that's why I said around, around that time. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting it. I mean, yep. just again, you haven't put much up online, but what you have has just been beautiful. And... And I've been hooked since, since I saw it. Thank so. you so much. More to come. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um, and one last question, and then we'll let you go, is do you think that we're ever going to see another hand-drawn feature from Disney? I, gosh, I wish I could answer that. I really can't answer that. Um, if they wanted to do one, they'd better get on it. Uh, because <laughs> um, if you do it in 10 years, um uh, Maybe my, my my generation wouldn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, uh, it'll have to be younger people that who are in inexperienced. So uh, it's still doable to do a quality hand-drawn feature. Now you you would have enough senior people joined by some some newcomers who could really pull it off. Uh, but they they shouldn't think about that for too long. It yeah. would be my 
advice. It's almost like if they wait too long, they have to reinvent the wheel. That's right. And that, that takes time and might not work out. Yeah. Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, this has just been a fascinating conversation and uh, the insight that you brought, mm-hmm. bring to, to, to our enjoyment of, of these films is, is, is astonishing. And, uh, and really, it's just, I mean, the films that you've worked on are some of my favorites. And it was, you know, I grew up with them. I know Justin grew up with mm-hmm. them. And it's, it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, what can I say? Thank you so much for having you guys. Thank you for for the interest. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. (laughs) Just a pause to create tension tension in the audience. Um, What a fascinating interview. I think I'm going to affectionately call him from now on Keeper of the Lore of the Nine Old Men. I like it. I like it. We could suggest that he puts it on a business card or something. Yes. Yeah. Maybe he'll take it. Who knows? Keep up the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. It's perfect. And Jamie, I saw you flipping through the book that you have there. It looks amazing. It, it yeah. is. And you should get yourself a copy. And I kind of am ashamed that you just admitted that you don't have a copy. Because I know. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, go go to Amazon. It's out. It's I can't Press. even talk now. I'm so shamed. I you should, should have be shamed. I am shaming you. It's uh, <laughs> go to Amazon. Go to Barnes and Noble. Go to your local bookstore. Just go somewhere and buy it. It's for, out from Focal Press. The Nine Old Men: Lessons, Techniques, and Inspiration from Disney's Great Animators. It's worth every penny. You will pay for it. Perfect. And where do I go from here? Oh, okay. I know. And I, we're going to throw up a link to the teaser of the film we were talking about with him. How about that? Does that sound good? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to win with the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, when this goes up in the show notes, I'm going to include a couple different um, links and or videos. I'm going to put up uh, the teaser trailer that he has for his film that he's working on, Mushka. And I'm also going to put up um, at least a link, if not the whole video of that. It's only a minute and a half, but... Um, right. that video of the recycled animation that we talked about. Right. And it was, it's really cool to hear the insight to that, to the recycled animation. Cause it's yeah. funny how Floyd with, you know, is, is of the opinion of one, one thing. Yeah. And he and Floyd seem that they seem to have differing opinions of why it was done. So. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. And that's what, you know, one of their good reasons to talk to these guys. Right. Exactly. And you know, just things you'll never know. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those Disney things, right? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, they are both in positions to know, so I don't know who to believe. <laughs> right, right. So before we go, what do you think? Do you think Disney's ever going to do another hand-drawn animation? You're asking me? Feature, yeah. What do you think? I, I, I think yes, but yep. I kind of agree with what he said. I hope that they do it sooner rather than later because we don't want them to wait too long. Right. You know, now you do it, and um, a lot of the greats, are still around. They're still working. You know, you've still got Eric Goldberg. You've still got Andreas Deja. You know, they've, they sort of, they've moved on um, to do other things. But I think that if they were given an opportunity that many, some, if not many of them would probably go back even just to, to mentor a new crop right. of animators who may, maybe don't have that experience with traditional hand drawn. Right. Well, and, and right now we're in an age where things that were old are now cool again. So exactly, you know, it's if it's not if it's going to happen, I think it's going to happen probably soon. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen in the next year or two. It's a, it's a commitment to get done, right. um, and it's you know like like he said and like everybody said, it's a risk. It's a mm-hmm. it's a risk for the studio to take. 
you know, they tried it with Princess and the Frog, and I guess that they feel like it didn't pay off. Um, but I feel like you look at the slate of movies that they've got. You know, Pixar has how many yeah. movies coming up? Two a year. Many have many of them are sequels. Mm-hmm. We're getting a Star Wars movie every year. We're getting two Marvel <laughs> movies every year. I think that they can take a risk on right. a drawn animated film. Well, and they're doing all the live action remakes. And they're so. doing all the live action. <laughs> Throw remakes. one hand drawn movie. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> It, it, yes, it is a risk for the studio to take, but I feel like they're they're so gung ho right. in every other area of filmmaking that they're involved in that I think that this is not that big of a risk for them. Right? To take. No, well, but they like, made Ant Man for crying out yeah. loud, and you know I think that they could do that. That you know that on paper was a huge risk and it right. paid off. But yeah. I think that you know one hand drawn animated film um, could do wonders for the studio. You know, we could do a hand-drawn, or why don't we go with a live-action Dumbo directed by Tim Burton? Let's yeah, do why don't we? <laughs> we don't. That's why we don't make those big bucks. Though. Exactly. We are not Disney executives. No, we are not. Hired Disney shills. No, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Oops. <laughs> I'll cut that out, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for coming by this week. Once again, we are at The GBB Podcast on Facebook at the GBP podcast on Twitter. You can't miss us. And Jamie has a phone number you can call. We are, uh, you can call us 301-825-5653. Leave us a message. And if you want, we can even include your, uh, whatever you got to say on a future episode. Sing a song, read Sing a poem. song, you know, curse, curse us out. Tell us you hate us. Read a script to the original star Wars movies, whatever. It's a poem. I, yep. Whatever. You got it. It's Give your call. call. It's you your dime. It. You know, no. you want to make the call and it's your, your data, your minute. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, we've been going too long. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bye. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.